This is a Rooster Teeth production. July 16th, 1945. The USS Indianapolis set out from San Francisco to Pearl Harbor on a top secret mission. Two weeks later, the Indianapolis had sunk and her crew had spent three harrowing days in shark-infested waters. The world would never be the same again. I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. Ahoy and- I was too energetic, hang on. Okay. I'm Patrick. Uh, Leave all of it though to show the process. Exactly, yeah, hold on. I'm Charlotte. I already got my intro. Okay. Ahoy and welcome aboard Ship Hits the Fan, a podcast about some of history's most notable uh uh-ohs and whoopsies on the high seas. This is both? Grand uh uh-oh. Yeah, one of the grandest and most horrifying uh uh-ohs ever (laughs) to ever happen to anyone, I think. And it's a long uh uh-oh. It's not a brief one. Yeah. Um, Now I am become podcast, destroyer of boredom. We knew the creation of an incredibly niche podcast, as according to Lifehacker, would change the world forever. But we could never have known how drastically so. Mm -hmm. Drunk off our hubris, we've also embarked on the very first two-part episode to ever be released on an RSS feed. Uh, Probably. I think. I I didn't look into it. And, And I recommend that you, the listener, also don't. Good. Yeah, good call. So this is a two-parter. It's the first two-parter we've ever done. It's the first, yeah. Uh, but this is a big one. <laughs> oh boy, is it ever. An oft-requested one as well. Because mm-hmm. it is horrid. It's, it's horrifying that it's in that movie, and, and you think... <laughs> that's this, not what's scary about it. No, 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 no. That's, well, that's not, I don't think it's scary that things are in a movie. What's okay. scary to me is hearing that, um, probably for the third time, because it's so hard to understand Quint, yeah. and going, well, this is fiction. This is a this is a fictional world mm. that we're living in. There's no amity. Right. Uh, there's no such thing as mayors. Right. Or sharks. Yeah. But no, actually, it turns out all those things. Well, I don't know about amity. Anyway, the shipwreck. Very real. Yeah. There's also a horrible movie made about this with Nicolas Cage that is pretty unwatchable. They're shark. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. All right, so we are talking about the USS Indianapolis. That's right. Yeah, the Indianapolis is different from many of the ships that we cover on this show because it was essentially one of only two made. The US would go on to make similar ships and more modernized versions of these ships, but at the time they were built, they were only two. Designated as Portland class, the USS Indianapolis and the USS Portland were built by the United States Navy in 1930. They should have been both called the Portland, but in parentheses, one would be Oregon. And the other would be Maine. Maine. Yeah. Oregon. It's really good. Oregon. 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 Yeah. Oregon Targaryen. It's important to note that we were not technically at war at this point. World War I had ended years before, and World War II hadn't really started yet. Even if Hitler had already begun his ascent to power overseas, the U.S. was still nearly a decade away from involving themselves in the worldwide conflict. The Portland and the Indianapolis were actually built as modified versions of earlier cruisers known as Northampton-class cruisers. This class of ship included six that were built from 1928 to 1931. Cool. Despite the fact that they knew that there were flaws in both the amount of guns included on these ships and that there were flaws in the armoring on the hulls of the ships, that's that's a common theme that we return to often. Uh, Too many guns. Yeah. They still sent them to war along with the Indianapolis and the Portland later on. Of those six, three of them sunk during World War II, notably because of their weaker armoring. The other three were scrapped about 10 years after the war after serving as transport vessels. 
Essentially, the U.S. really felt like their navy wasn't quite as impressive as they would have liked in World War I and had spent the intervening years just kind of building whatever they could think of and then trying to improve on it, <laughs> playing it's, jazz with your navy, essentially. It, it's really like, you know, it's like winning like an interaction argument, but there's a one-liner that, that you think of later and you're like, ah, yeah. damn, it would have been it would have been really cool yeah. to get that one in. Because, you know, World War I uh, was, was won. Yeah, uh, by our side, but then they were right. like, we could have like we could have like really done it. Though. We could have won better. We could have won better. Something else that contributed to this kind of boom in navy construction was the Great Depression and FDR's subsequent New Deal. FDR needed jobs to get us out of the Great Depression. We needed ships to rule the sea and to become a superpower. So it was a match made in heaven. I think we should do that today. I mean, you know, I think we've been this, doing this that economy, ever since. The, you know, yeah. right? We need we need more defense. Militarization. We need more defense spending. That would yeah, get yeah. us out of this. I mean, it might. A, a war, war would a be war really would good. For probably. Us. Yeah. yeah. I'm starting. This, I'm starting <laughs> to feel this inflation on my bank account. Yeah, I paid yeah. off my credit card yesterday. Woo! You're ready to go to war with I, anyone. I, it's not looking good. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Everything's expensive. It's expensive to be alive. Anyway. So the downside of this: a lot of these people are building and designing boats for the first time. <laughs> they have not done this before. <laughs> hey, you're doing great. Now, what yeah. you're going to want to do is hold this hammer by the handle. <laughs> okay. Oh. Oh. This isn't what ultimately is responsible for the tragedy of the Indianapolis, but it may have contributed to some of the other losses of fleet ships in battle, like the Northampton cruisers. You know, we don't know. We're amateurs, but you know, when you have amateur, when you have people doing stuff for the first time, it, there's a learning curve. Yeah, it's like how this is like our first podcast. No. Well, yeah, sort of. <laughs> We've done actually too many to be this bad at it still. Yeah. Mm, okay. There's also a bit of a pesky issue known as the Washington Naval Treaty, signed in 1922, and later the London Naval Treaty, signed in 1931. Essentially, these treaties limited how many boats and what kind of boats you could build at a time, so no one country got overpowered. It's like mutually assured destruction, right? With boats, But though. for boats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Imagine if yeah. every country in the world could launch all Had their boats, boats at the <laughs> yeah. same time. It's so funny because that, you know, now it's just, Looking it's all yeah. nuclear. It's all and, nuclear. Yeah, but yeah, like, it's like, the yeah, idea she, that like <laughs> if one country had too many boats, they'd be too powerful. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, so obviously some countries ignored this. That's how we ended up in World War II. <laughs> one of several reasons. But at the time, the U.S. was spacing these ships out and shifting the classifications of ships as they built them. For example, the Northampton class and the Pensacola class before it were designated as light cruisers due to their thin armor. The Portland and the Indianapolis were originally designated this way too until they added a bunch of guns. Mm, yeah, the Mary Rose has a few things to say about I that. I will say, if I owned a boat yeah. and it was legal, mm -hmm. I would 100% have a mounted machine gun on my boat. Yeah, of course, because... Do I need it? Absolutely not. Would it probably cause more harm than good? 100%, I mean, You're only of taking course. it out on the lake. You're not going to war. If you were to fire a gun off the back of like a uh, like a water skiing boat or spe you know something like that, I think the boat would sink. <laughs> I think it would just whip it around in circles until it sank. Pro probably, yeah. And I, it would be worth it. It would be worth it for you me. Should, well, now I think cut out the middleman, put the mounted machine gun on a jet ski. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. If it fits, yes. Of course, that's a cool and interesting idea. <laughs> and we will talk about it later. Yeah. Yeah. Off mic. The decision to add guns was made while the cruisers were still being built, which pushed them from light cruisers to heavy cruisers. The U.S., in accordance with the treaty, referred to these three batches of ships as treaty cruisers. 
Because they were built based on treaty guidelines, and also because nothing says peace treaty like adding a ton more guns to your ship. It is so funny that like they're immediately like, we need to loophole our way into more ships with guns. It's like how, I don't know if this is true, but I heard the PT Cruiser, given its dimensions, is technically a small truck. And, and was okay. really a boon for the uh, Chrysler um, fuel efficiency in that class of vehicle. Oh, okay. Because yeah, it that was makes technically sense. a sedan, but yeah, it had yeah, that yeah. weird wide bottom. It was too, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but I've chosen to believe it. Yeah. Convinced they had worked out the kinks of the Northampton class, the U.S. Navy began construction on the two ships in 1930. The ships were outfitted with top-of-the-line weapons guidance systems for the first time, which basically were fancy binoculars that helped you see where the other boats were. Currently, naval directors are actually advanced computers that help triangulate missiles. In World War II, most boats, including the Indianapolis, were fitted with a radar antenna that assisted in directing weapons in addition to sight. The ship had four propeller shafts and four giant turbines, powering the ship at its top speed of 32 knots, that's around 37 miles per hour, I know. required eight boilers. To this, they added nine 55 caliber guns. If you're not a gun person, these guns are more like cannons that fire projectiles eight inches in diameter. <laughs> you can also use them for deer hunting. <laughs> for reference, the average salad plate is approximately eight inches in diameter. So, that's a big bullet. Yeah, but I don't, I don't need salads. So you don't understand. What okay. size okay, bowl would it. this got be? <laughs> uh, but that did not seem like enough firepower. I agree. They added eight 25 caliber guns for anti-aircraft defense. These fired projectiles, the diameter of about a 16-ounce can of beans. Yeah. You're putting that on your plate, your 8-inch yeah. plate, because I'm having bean salad. Mm-hmm. Now, was that enough? Yes. No. no. Oh. It was not. They okay. added two Hotchkiss guns. Guns are kind of a misnomer here. These are definitely cannons. <laughs> cool. Uh, they then added 24 guns oh that fired God. projectiles of about 1.5 inches in diameter. Very small salad. Yeah. Those are the, the diameter of the pop socket on your phone. Oh, okay. Yeah. You could put a tomato on there. Some okay, diced so that's, onions. That's it for guns. One crew time. I'm just kidding, of course. That's not it for guns. <laughs> they then added 19 more guns oh my God. that fired bullets the diameter of a quarter. And how big is that? A quarter? Mm-hmm. About uh, roughly, what is that the size I don't of? have any point of reference for that. Okay. Well, we'll have to like record something else yeah listener uh take use your imagination yeah. imagine what a quarter would be the size of yeah i mean the fact that the smallest thing fires something that's still the size of a quarter yeah is... but like a quarter of what we're not we don't, we're not doing this okay the previous fleet of northampton so like a cruises... quarter of like a sal <laughs> okay could you go on could yeah. you continue yeah thank you the previous fleet of Northampton cruisers had about one inch of armor plating for protection, but when constructing the Portland and the Indianapolis, they decided to add an additional two to four inches in thickness all over the ship. Oh, she thick. A capsule that can make the <laughs> ship two to four inches thicker? <laughs> uh, but really, it's not the size of the armor plating on the boat that counts. It's the motion of the ocean, and in this case, the motion of the ocean was a huge problem. That's... Not good. Yeah, that's because adding all this stuff to the Indianapolis and the Portland also added substantial weight to the ships. Okay. This we'll weight, hire very thin crew members. Yeah, it's Navy guys. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. This weight was not necessarily evenly distributed, so the Indianapolis had a tendency to roll badly. Again, very common theme on this show. Yeah. 
So badly, in fact, they had to add a bilge keel on either side of the ship to counterbalance the weight and keep her level and upright as much as possible. You don't want to hear upright as much as possible yeah. when it comes to hey, the construction of a ship. At least in this point, they had the technology to be like, this ship is rolling, but we have a thing we can add to the, it yeah, to, to help. To, to help a little bit. They didn't just have guys running back and forth across <laughs> yeah. the deck and then go, well, I mean, that there's, not, that, there's not anything yeah. to do about it. Uh, having heard all of this, it makes sense to doubt the safety of the Indianapolis and Portland cruisers. But quite the contrary. Prior to the start of World War II, one of the primary responsibilities of the Indianapolis was to transport President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and members of the cabinet. Huh. She became the flagship of the post-World War I scouting force before going back to transporting the president on his tours of South America. But then the U.S. entered World War II. The Indianapolis was part of a task force including destroyer ships and minesweepers in December of 1941. They were testing formations and battle strategy at Johnson Atoll. Is that how you say Atoll? Atoll, I think, yeah. They were testing formations and battle strategy at Johnson Atoll when they heard news of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Immediately, the ship was absorbed into Task Force 12, tasked with chasing down the aircraft carriers that had brought the Japanese planes to Pearl Harbor but they were unsuccessful and sailed back to Oahu, where they rejoined the rest of the Navy at Pearl Harbor. Task Force 12, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it's unfortunate how much of this stuff is quite cool. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Following the attack, the Indianapolis was responsible for escorting the U.S.'s aircraft carrier to the South Pacific. Upon arrival, they were attacked by 18 Japanese planes. By the end of the day, 16 of the planes had been gunned down by U.S. aircraft from the Lexington, and two had been shot out of the air by the Lexington itself, and miraculously, the Indianapolis and her crew were unharmed. That's pretty impressive, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Less than a month later, based on intel that the Japanese were assembling amphibious forces, Frogman. aka submarines, oh, no, okay. no, yeah. The Indianapolis and the rest of their task force mounted a surprise attack near New Guinea, where they badly damaged the Japanese fleet. I realize we missed an opportunity to, to do it. I was a frog man, <laughs> a fighter, a Navy SEAL. <laughs> we miss you, Brian. Oh, terribly. God, I'm pouring one out. They then moved on to the Aleutian Islands campaign in the North Pacific, assisting in the occupation of Adak Island and Unalaska Island. They continued through the Aleutian Islands until eventually being requested at the islands of Kwajalein Atoll for a D-Day blockade. Essentially, even after D-Day, the Indianapolis spends most of its time being the boat equivalent of a war hero. Cool. What does that mean? Uh, lauded? Celebrated? Is it? I didn't People get that. People come out and this. they're like, it's the Indianapolis! Look, and they're waving handkerchiefs. Probably yeah, sure. they're putting their kids up on their shoulders. Mm -hmm. All the way up to 18. <laughs> yeah. Which is why it was chosen for a top secret mission. Ooh. They had a package to deliver. What do you think it was? Mm, I don't know. I ordered some extension cords. Well, the sender, Target. the sender was something called the Manhattan Project. Oh. Uh, which, if you're unfamiliar with, it's the division of the Department of Defense that created the atomic bomb. Oh. Thus creating and using the first nuclear weapons. Oh, okay. I am become understanding. Yes. <laughs> the Manhattan Project was actually a joint effort between the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. But it was about New York. Bah, 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 sure, <laughs> yeah. It was overseen by Leslie Groves of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and nuclear physicist Robert Oppenheimer. Bobby Oppie. Yep. 
The Army's first headquarters for the project were in Manhattan, hence the nickname, the Manhattan Project. Ba, 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 da, da. The official codename for the project was Development of Substitute Materials. <laughs> Start spreading the development of substitute <laughs> materials. Despite being a secret mission, the Manhattan Project employed more than 130,000 people and oh. cost $2 billion in 1940 dollars. Oh! In modern day dollars, it's between about 23 to 26 billion. Oh! Yeah. My goodness. Of that budget, nearly 90% of it was spent on Project Y, which focused on creating raw materials for bombs, specifically fissile material. These were materials capable of sustaining nuclear fission chain reactions, resulting in big explosions. Big yeah. explosions, yeah. It was so important to the mission that the Manhattan Project purchased land and facilities in New Mexico for what became known as the Los Alamos Lab. This lab was tasked with exclusively working on developing nuclear weapons. Yeah, you can you can go out there in New Mexico and, and basically see where they were testing this stuff. It's yeah. near the White Sands Memorial. It's... I mean, it, there, it really is just vast and expansive, uh, uh, you know, tracts of, of hugely unused land. Mm -hmm. I mean, they still do military uh, stuff there. Yeah. The Manhattan Project had invested their energy into two different types of bombs. One experiment focused on implosion-type nuclear weapons, which would require internal detonation, and gun-type weapons that required internal propulsion for detonation. Though they did make some progress. Their main focus was building two implosion-type weapons, one known as the Trinity device and the other known as the Fat Man. <laughs> one sounds like a crazy sci-fi, like, alien technology. The Trinity device. The other is the Fat Man. The other one is Aronofsky's The Whale. Yeah. The Trinity device is notable for being the first nuclear weapon to ever be detonated. Oppenheimer is said to have named it after poems by John Donne, specifically one titled, Hymn to God, My God, In My Sickness, and another titled, Batter my heart, three-personed God. Oppenheimer seems seems kind of uh, wayfish and he did he read, he was too well read. overly intellectual. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> if you're gonna create a device that can instantly wipe out hundreds of thousands of a people, whole country, you shouldn't you be reading to. books. You no. should you should have no introspection in your life. Well, or more. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Did some really awful things with these devices. Well, that's what I'm saying. If you are going to partake in this line of work, you have to seal off your heart. Oh, I understand what you're saying now. Yeah, yeah. I see now. Both poems deal with themes of death and duality, specifically the duality of having to embrace death to achieve eternal life, but also the duality of being imperfect while striving to be more like God. I mean, that's the thing, though. He's well-read enough that he can justify his actions philosophically. I guess. Right? I mean, I don't know if he... I mean, he was pretty unhappy with it. Right? Yeah, Didn't I don't, I don't like think destroy... anyone was like... I don't think anyone who made it was like, this Stoked was chill. <laughs> yeah. In interviews with Oppenheimer regarding the Trinity device, it would seem as if he had his own conflicted feelings about the project. He mourned the inevitable loss of life that would come from his weapons, but also believed that using them could end the war and save more lives over time. Mm-hmm. That's a lot for one person to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's quite a bit. Yeah. July 16th, 1945. The U.S. Army detonated the Trinity device in the Hornada del Muerto Desert, about 35 miles southeast of Socorro, New Mexico, near the Los Alamos lab site. To be clear, this wasn't just a random desert. Rather, it had been used as a bombing and gunnery range and still is to this day. If you feel like visiting, it is now part of the White Sands Missile Range, and there is an obelisk commemorating the, commemorating the detonation of the Trinity device. I've seen it. 
There you go. White sands, very, yeah. very cool. Naturally occurring thing. It's not like radiation <laughs> leach the sands of New Mexico. Yeah. The only structures near the testing range were a small handful of hastily constructed buildings that served as makeshift laboratories and one larger structure known as the McDonald Ranch House. It did have a play place. Oh. Grimace was actually a result of nuclear testing. <laughs> <laughs> so was Ronald McDonald. He fell yeah. into that. Yeah. Prior to the detonation, these structures were used to assemble the Trinity device out of its component parts. Some parts had been transferred to the testing site from Manhattan and other army sites, while others were built right there in the lab. Why was it transported separately? Well, this is a new type of weapon that includes components known to be volatile. If the weapon had been transported whole, there was a risk of it detonating outside the testing range and potentially killing thousands or even millions of Americans. Assembling the weapon in Manhattan, for example, could have been catastrophic if it were to explode. Sort of like when it did explode in <laughs> Hiroshima mm -hmm. and Nagasaki. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. This also led to them building additional components in the event that the detonation failed or misfired and they needed to safely retrieve the plutonium from the launch. Namely, a giant steel container named Jumbo. Uh <laughs> Trinity was hosted on top of a 100-foot steel tower. Like the show. Yes, exactly, <laughs> where we record. Designed to mimic being dropped from a plane and to reduce the amount of fallout by dropping and detonating right onto the intended target. They stacked a full truckload of mattresses on the drop site just in case the cables broke as they were being hoisted uh, to its drop point. Unfortunately, a hobo decided it was a beautiful place to set down yeah, for a nap. A man named Crackers was... <laughs> Uh, got he, off the train in white sands he, and yeah, he, saw a mattress. He and, wiggled the tips, the ripped off tips of his gloves and <laughs> yes. said, don't mind if I do. Yep. <laughs> Put down his and bindle. And ate from a bullet the size of a can of beans. <laughs> yes, siree. <laughs> uh, so this is important to mention because it illustrates just how afraid everyone was of this device detonating somewhere they didn't plan for before they saw it in action. The test was completed successfully at 5.29 p.m. on July 16, 1945, and for the first time in history, they witnessed the magnitude of what a weapon like this could do. I mean, of course, it's a cancer. This made them even more cautious about transporting and working on components to build these weapons. But also, they were afraid someone else would be able to create more of these weapons if they had all the pieces and all the plans. Oh, it's like the Coke recipe. Yes, exactly. They required that all pieces be kept separate and were only in the same place at the same time during assembly of the weapon itself. That's where the Indianapolis comes in. The Manhattan Project had also focused on a gun-type fission weapon. This means the nuclear components are essentially fired into one another to create the reaction. Oh, man. Yeah. The Los Alamos lab managed to develop plans and a uranium core for one of these weapons. Now, there's a world where this is called, like, the Amalgam 5 uh, Entropy... Um, diffuser. Yeah. Right? Well, this one's called Little Boy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see which ones uh, certain people named and which ones other people named. If I was a spy and I was going through a list of uh, top secret projects that had been given to me on microfiche or whatever, however, yeah, it's Yeah. And I saw Little Boy, I would be like, that is top priority. <laughs> whatever that is, if they're calling it Little Boy, that means it is a devastating. You think it is something that will be de devastating for us? It's 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 misdirection. It's misdirection. Yeah, yeah. It's classic misdirection. Yeah. it's the magic. Yeah. of, of fat man. I probably would have. Ah, that's nothing. You can. We we don't need to worry about that. What about Trinity? Trinity device. is also something. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to get inside your head. Yeah. And yeah. I'm having a hard time. <laughs> yeah. 
Similarly, they planned to keep the components separate until assembly, but in this case, the goal wouldn't be testing. It would be full detonation. I'm, I'm sorry, but there is nothing scarier than nuclear, like, warfare. Like, yeah, these it's, devices are so new, too. Yeah, yeah. Just days after the Trinity test, on July 16, 1945, Little Boy's components were loaded from the naval factory where they had been partially built onto the USS Indianapolis. Curse these men for making this thing have such a funny name. I know. The ship took off from San Francisco and made record time to Pearl Harbor, arriving a little over three days later on July 19th. From there, they received their orders to proceed to Tinian Island. The Indianapolis was carrying both the target and some of the core materials namely the enriched uranium, which accounted for nearly half the uranium-235 in the world at that time. However, they were not told what these items were for or why they were transporting them. No one on the ship knew exactly what their mission was or why. All they knew is that they needed to sail to Tinian Island and keep their mouths shut. Tinian Island plays a pretty important role in World War II. It's located about 1,500 miles from mainland Japan, and initially the Japanese had largely left Tinian alone at least until they realized that it was one of the few islands large enough to stage American Boeing B-29 Super Fortress bombers. That is Super a cool fortress. name. That's a cool Damn, name. Yeah, yeah. I hate it. Yeah. I, I hate this. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what America wanted to do, which is why they fought and occupied the island. Conveniently, since the Japanese had attempted to garrison the island only months before, it came with built-in airstrips and hangars. They huh. did the work for us. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. More than just staging for aircraft, Tinian also had a naval base which would allow American forces to stage fleets there. This is where the Indianapolis landed on July 26, 1945. Indianapolis unloaded her cargo, still none the wiser to what they had been carrying this entire time. They received orders to proceed on to Guam where they relieved most of their crew members and took on a new crew. The Indianapolis left Guam on July 28th. Woo! That was, where, that was where you wanted to get off. Yeah, shouts out to the old crew. Oh, Lord. Their next planned stop was Leyte in the Philippines, where they would train before joining Task Force 95 in Okinawa and jump back into active battle. They never made it. Eee, yikes. A week later, the components they dropped off in Tinian were assembled to form the Little Boy device and loaded onto the Enola Gay. Still terrified of the bomb accidentally detonating in flight or during takeoff, the weaponeers of the Enola Gay loaded the bomb still partially unassembled and completed the final pieces of assembly in flight. I didn't know that. Yeah. As they reached altitude over Hiroshima, they armed the bomb. At 8.14 a.m., the Enola Gay spots their drop point, the AOE bridge. They target the bridge, and the little boy drops out of the plane. <laughs> Sounds funny. It's, it's really uh, unfortunate. Yeah. The plane immediately banks 155 degrees to the right. The bomb is released at 31,060 feet and falls 6 miles in 43 seconds. It detonated above Hiroshima at 1,968 feet. Meanwhile, the Enola Gay has already flown 11 miles back toward Tinian. On the plane, they can see a shimmer on the horizon before the first of three shockwaves hits the plane, nearly knocking it out of the sky. On the ground, during peak commute times in Hiroshima, a giant fireball grows in the sky. The temperatures and pressure created by the bomb begin to instantly vaporize anything in its path. Within seconds, two-thirds of the buildings in the city are destroyed. 80,000 people are instantly dead, and Hiroshima is bathed in radiation levels that will kill thousands more in the coming days. I, our country has done some really terrible things to all number of people across the world. This one's pretty... This one's, It's upsetting. This one is uh, extremely upsetting. It's upsetting. 
The Indianapolis, on the other hand, after delivering the supplies to make so much death and carnage possible, would find herself and her crew facing a horrifying fight to survive at sea. And that is where we will pick up next week. Wow. And it gets pretty bad. It gets gruesome. Yeah. Okay. Wow. A lot to, uh, much to think about. I, I am enjoying this, this cliffhanger, though. We've not had this before. I know. Yeah. What's going to happen next week? I mean, you could look it up, but I would say don't. Yeah, or we, you could watch the you terrible know, movie. You could Nick watch Cage. the terrible movie with Nick Cage. But I'll tell you what we do have for you right now. we got an honorable mention. Today's honorable mention comes to us from the Twitter account Whores of Yore, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is uh, the at and the display name. Uh, this is by way of a few listeners who sent this in, so thank you to everybody that uh, thought of us. Debauchery on the coast of New Brighton. Oh, okay. Yes. In 1866, a ship sank off the coast of Merseyside, England, resulting in much of the cargo washing ashore. Uh, among that cargo, in addition to cotton and sugar, were 130 casks of rum. Ooh. Raw rum. They Raw rum. To it. Yeah. They hadn't been distilled yet or something? What is that? Uh, it, well, it was definitely alcoholic. Well, yeah. That much I can speak yeah, yeah. to. I don't okay. know. Uh, it was, this this, this uh, tweet came with a few images from a quite old newspaper at the uh, time. Okay. Uh, and it's got some, it's got really great turns of phrases. We talked about this as far back as our first episode on the show when the SS Eastland looked like a jungle beast shot through the heart yeah, yeah, in yeah, the yeah, yeah. Chicago River. Uh, they take some, they take some uh, creative liberties with mm-hmm. the way they describe things. So early in this report, this very old newspaper report, uh, the writer says, quote, there is a saying among Cornish men that a stormy winter is the wrecker's harvest. Yeah, I guess it is. It's good. That's a, yeah, that yeah. is good. I uh, say that. It's not bones bleaching. No. But, but you know, we'll think about it. Previous to this incident, the local community of New Brighton was regarded as a collection of upstanding citizens with no shortage of honor and dignity. Sure. They'd led no one to think otherwise. Mm-hmm. However, this paper accounts shocking debauchery and violence. Oh. Yeah. So... News spreads extremely quickly, uh, like wildfire, the article says. That there's free liquor that to be there had. there is free liquor, yeah. yeah. yeah Cheap yeah. drinks washing ashore. Yeah. And by the time officials reclaimed the rum, many had already been tapped. Yes. Of course. So apparently the beach was overrun with uh, drunk individuals, men and women alike, awesome. uh, with some of them sleeping off the rum across the beach. Yeah. In one case, a guy died uh I was assuming alcohol poisoning, but reading through this, you'd be surprised at some of the situations that these uh, people found themselves in. This is my favorite part. A painter allegedly emptied his paint can, wiped out the insides with grass, filled it with rum, took a swig, and then immediately (laughs) fell on his head into a pool of water. Oh, my God. And that was lead paint, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This 1860s. Oh, yeah. Uh, witnesses pulled him out. <laughs> probably, yeah, probably. Uh, who knows what was in paint at the time, but yeah. it was so awesome that he was like, I gotta get some of this rum. Oh, what do I have? What do I have? <laughs> and then wiping it out with grass feverishly. Yeah. Even children were reported to have enjoyed some of the alcohol that washed ashore. Yeah, of course. Um, this is where it takes a turn for the less fun. Unfortunately, it was not all rum and paint cans, as some men apparently coerced women into drinking the rum before oh, taking advantage of them. Uh, this gross. is why we cannot have nice things, yeah. because of disgusting men who can't let uh, 130 casks of rum washing up on an English shore 
be the simple pleasure it should be. Yeah. Uh, there were many arrests, uh, but we can say confidently that the reputation of New Brighton was likely tarnished for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of this recording, we are unaware of any sayings by Cornish men relating to public intoxication by shipwrecked rum casks. Okay. <laughs> so uh, there you go. Debauchery. Uh, violence, rum, uh, rum, paint cans <laughs> filled with rum. just the idea of like swig, Woo! boom, down. Like yeah. you just got like knocked out by a heavyweight boxer. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Cut and dry. All right, thanks everybody. We'll be back next week for Indianapolis Part Two. Part Two. It's gonna be bad. It's gonna be really bad, but it's also gonna be a really good episode. Keep them bones bleached. Yeah, pre uh, bleach those bones for next week. Yeah. The show is written by Paige Wesley. You may know her work from Cult Podcast. It's edited by Kelly Reynolds and Nick Schwartz. Art by Stevie Hogan. Thank you for listening. Bye, oh, everybody. and follow us oh. at Ship Hits Pod. Yeah, on everything. On everything, everywhere. Bye. Bye. Bye.